Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we think is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility or even a probability. Now in this second series, we've been seeking out the people who are using these tools, people with the experience and depth of practice to lead us to a future where humanity and the planet both flourish. With that in mind, my guest today is Sarah Schlotter, returning for part two of our conversation. Sarah's a psychotherapist and somatic experiencing practitioner from Canada who specialises in integrating somatic experiencing and trauma neuroscience in horses and in people. She has a quite extraordinary depth of knowledge and experience of both the theory and practice of what makes us tick, and she has the ability to explain what she knows clearly and yet with such humanity and compassion that I find her work totally compelling. Our first podcast together was number 21. If you haven't listened to it, you might want to check it out. That's where we dive deep into the structural theories behind what makes us tick. The somatic experiencing theory, the polyvagal theory, how our bodies respond to trauma or to triggers in the environment, why we do the things we do. At the end of that podcast, we had just reached the understanding of our own co-regulation and dysregulation, the impact on us individually and socially of lockdown. And it felt as if we could easily devote another whole podcast to the ways that each of us could apply this, to finding out how we can help us regulate ourselves and each other in this really strange time that might yet become the new normal. So that's what we did. We recorded another podcast looking at the ways we can help ourselves to feel safe on our own, in our close relationships, and in the strange outer and inner online world that is so much of what we do. So people of the podcast, please welcome for the second time, Sarah Schlotter. So welcome, Sarah Schlotter, for part two of what is, I am sure, going to be a completely mind-bending, mind-blowing. And for most of the feedback we've had for the first podcast was that people found it so useful to understand their own process. Cool. So by the end of last time, we had covered Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory, the, the difference between the sympathetic and the two sorts of vagal tone. And for anybody listening... I will put a link to Sarah's resources page back in the show notes and on the website because this is really fundamental and that paper that you gave at Guelph was so clear and so structured. So rather than us reading through all of that, if you're interested, listen to the first podcast and then go and look at the notes and look at the diagram because it helps a lot, I think, to see the differences between the different ways of perceiving our safety or danger or life threat in that curve with the with the colours, the traffic light colours makes it go in easier. So where we'd ended at the end of the first part 
was looking at how we support co-regulation in a time of pandemic, when we're all having to be remote, when a lot of our ways of regulating ourselves and co-regulating ourselves used to depend on human contact, that is now really quite limited. So what I'd like to explore in this podcast is how we can find ways during lockdown and whatever lockdown progresses into of feeling safe in our own bodies, safe in relationship, and safe in the outer world. Hmm. Where where to begin? It's such an interesting topic. And I think maybe we could start with this idea of pandemic and how we reach out and make connection. Because I think one of the things that is really interesting right now these days is how we're having to make more use of social media and we're having to make more use of things like Zoom or Skype or WhatsApp video or Messenger video um, and in order to be able to create some sort of sense of connection. Mm. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is I just did um, an interview recently with a colleague of mine in the U.S., and we talked a little bit about uh, the difficulties with even using video uh, in order to connect, and yet at the same time, how we can still experience a sense of co-regulation through video. Brilliant. Um, provided that we are being intentional about it. Right. So perhaps what I'll do is I'll talk, I'll share a story um, that happened um, recently when I was teaching a training online. And I was teaching a training with about, we had about 41, 42 people from around the world in on this call. And it was a very, very interesting training in that we were talking all about these topics. We were looking at polyvagal theory and attachment theory and the nervous system and somatic experiencing and trauma and all these really cool, nerdy topics that, you know, are so, so fascinating. And I would love to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think you would have really enjoyed it, Amanda. <laughs> and so we were doing this this training, and what was really interesting was we were working through um, some material. We were looking at the nervous system responses when we feel safe, when we feel a neuroception of danger, and when we feel a neuroception of life threat. And and what we were doing was as we were connecting with images and videos that really um, showed animals in various states of this kind of threat response cycle, we were kind of sharing with each other what we were noticing in our bodies as we were looking at these images and these videos. And some people were responding by video. Um, some people were typing in the chat box and saying, oh, I noticed like a pressure in my chest or I feel like my feet want to run or I noticed like like a heat rising into my face and and everyone was sharing their nervous system state and what was really really interesting was while we were experiencing this one participant in in question she started talking about how her cat, um, during us going through this threat response cycle, went from being calm when we were all calm to starting to act like a predator when we were connecting with the image of the predator wow. chasing the prey animal. 
And her cat started predating, if I could create a verb, around her home (laughs) and started stalking various things and pouncing and attacking various things. And and she let us know. She said, it's so interesting that my cat is doing this because my cat wasn't doing this just a few moments ago. And so in the what we might call in the field, in the resonance of coming together, we can actually sense each other's states, even though it's through yeah, and broadcast um, it through video. That a cat can feel it. That's astonishing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was so cool. And and I mean, and who knows? I mean, is this because the cat was resonating off of all forty three of us, or was mm. the cat resonating, was resonating off her yeah, owner, absolutely. who was resonating off of the rest of us? I mean, what's more, what's Occam's razor, right? So what's the easiest explanation yep. is probably that the cat was responding off the owner, yeah. but the owner yeah. was responding so off of in us. In the end, it's the same thing, basically. In the end, it's the same thing. Ultimately, the ripple effect will spread. What would okay? So how we would test this is you do exactly the same again, and the owner yeah. leaves the room and you just put the cat in with a camera and uh-huh. you all do that with the video running and you see what the cat does. Wouldn't that be interesting? That would be really, really fascinating. We could do a, a, some sort of a controlled trial. Anyway, sorry, that's my my veterinary side coming going, gosh, <laughs> gosh, because the implications of that for people, the understanding of yeah. the extent to which the energy in a collective group is shared is at the heart of all of shamanic yes. work. It's at the heart of animal communication. It's the heart of local and distant energy healing. It's at the heart of most of the stuff that lies on the fringes of what we do. But this is a tangible, objective, you know, you weren't trying to do woo-woo stuff. You were doing pretty good from the sound of things, geeky, hardcore science. And yet, and yet the cat did what it did. (laughs) Yeah. And the cat did what it did. And in what I think is really lovely about what you might call the woo-woo stuff is that often the woo-woo stuff does have scientific explanation for it. Yes. And and that's where I kind of love the woo-woo stuff. You know, some people will be, you know, because I do have a really interestingly spiritual side. There are, I mean, there are certain gifts that I have where I can, I connect with things that I don't know that I know, but I know them for some reason. And I can't explain why I know those things. And, and so there are parts of me that have, you know, that kind of defy explanation. But some of the things that I experience, I also, what I love about the sciencey side of me is that I actually have explanations for what I'm actually noticing. Right. So it kind of, the two kind of come together for me, within me, uh, in a really interesting way. And I, and so during that, that training that we had a few weeks ago, that happened in a really profound way. And then later I was talking with a colleague of mine. And as we were talking about that, I was in my office and no animals around and she was at her place and she has animals in her yard and she was saying you know as we were talking and her and I were connecting through the video and playing with eye contact and what happens when you know because even with video Mm -hmm. when you look at the screen and the person you're looking at is looking at their you're screen. Not. You're not quite making yeah. eye contact. You're you're looking yes. you're looking at the video screen, and and so we kind of played with it a little bit. And I said, okay, so let's try something. I'm going to look at my camera, which is going to give you the impression that yeah. I'm looking you in the eyes. But then you don't have the feedback. She thinks, and you don't. It's, it's, this is where it's a disconnect, right? And yet at the same time, while there's a, a, an odd kind of disconnect, I can still see her peripherally through my peripheral vision because while my gaze is on the camera, I can still see her take a deeper breath in the video just beneath my eyes. Yeah. Right? So there's a little bit of awareness 
right, of her states shifting, because I can visually see her body size and her body posture change, even if I'm looking through the video itself, like the camera itself. So I positioned her screen, her little capture just below my video. And I said, I'm going to switch my eyes up to looking into the camera, which is going to give you the illusion that I'm looking you in the eyes. But it is kind of like that. Um, Except I don't see you seeing me seeing you. (laughs) And so we tried it. And it was so fascinating because she felt such a different state in her Mm. nervous system knowing that having that impression of me looking at her and knowing that I could still at least see her body response in the periphery shift and she tracked her state and was telling me you know as you're looking at me through the camera and I see your eyes look at my eyes even though it's a little artificial I can sense something calming in my body. Oh my goodness. I can sense something changing inside of me because I'm getting that face-to-face contact that in the polyvagal theory is so and important. And eye-to-eye contact because you get quite good face-to-face contact with Zoom these days, but not eye-to-eye. So the eye-to-eye do. makes a difference. Not eye-to-eye. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. So I'm thinking there are there's kind of two separate sets of Zoom calls that we do at the moment. There's the one-to-one. And then there's the one-to-many. Yes. And with the one-to-one, I have been staying quite close to the screen, where there's quite a big angle from looking at the screen where I'm looking at your eyes, but not looking you in the eye, Mm -hmm. to looking up at the camera. But when I'm doing one-to-many, I've been moving a foot or so back, so the angle is much less. Because when when I have to talk to large crowds, I tend to pick half a dozen people in the audience and make eye contact with them serially. Because it feels like yeah, you know, yeah. then I have eye contact and I feel if I have eye contact, then the audience feels that they have eye contact with me, even if they're not the yes. one I'm looking at. So yes. the theory would be, my theory has been up till now, that by making the angle shallower, even though I'm having to look at the screen yes. because I'm looking at slides or something, then it feels yeah. more like I'm making eye contact. So from what you're saying, yes. that's... Because, but then you're smaller because you're further back from this. You can't have, you can't be close in and have a shallow angle. You have to have one or the other. Correct. So do we think in general that it matters more to be close so that the nuances of our face are readily visible or to be further away so that eye contact feels real? And that's so interesting. I mean, I can speak to the benefits of both Mm. because when we did the training, we had a moment where we decided to put ourselves on gallery view, those who wanted to. Because here's the thing, eye contact is not comfortable for everyone. So I'm going to come back around to that later. Um, so, So, but for those people for whom the seeking of the eye contact and the seeking of the facial visual um, was helpful to experience a sense of connection and co-regulation. We turned our videos on, we went to gallery view, and some people just showed their names because we were in Zoom, and so you could see their names. So they could see us seeing each other, Mm. but they didn't want to be seen. And there's something really potent about being able to choose that. And so for those people who weren't feeling quite ready to be in social connection because social connection was scary or was never safe in the past, those people chose to not be seen but chose to watch. And everyone else sort of chose to um, do that. And what we did was we made eye contact from person to person. We kind of sequentially allowed ourselves to 
wave and we would wave and we would look at someone and we would wait until that person noticed and then we would smile and then that person would smile and it started to create this beautiful little ripple effect throughout the whole group and it was like it was like this really potent moment of oh here we are sitting in our respective homes in our respective time zones on our respective continents Right, right. <laughs> you know, and and yet here we are sharing this interesting space where we are sensing each other. Right. And because the videos were, of course, much smaller because we had more videos on the screen, um, the angle it was interesting. Although the angles, you know, were varying, um, the, the the gallery view made everything smaller, and so we were able to kind of have that experience of looking at each other and. Like I remember at one point I made a smile looking at someone and that person, we didn't quite have the eye gaze correct, but we were looking at each other and she smiled back. And so even though the eye connection wasn't there, there was still a face-to-face connection and an experience of recognition and the pinging between my grin and her grin and then the, the noticing of each other's grins as we noticed each other. And then that, and then what we did was we paid really close attention to what changes inside the body when we had those moments. Right. And then people would share. It's like, I'm noticing a settling or I'm noticing a warmth or I feel more connected to all of you or I feel more settled on my chair or, you know, and, and all this yeah. kind of stuff. So while it's not quite the same, um, and I think obviously, obviously having the eye to eye contact adds a whole other layer to it. Mm. There was still something to be said for the not so perfect eye contact, but still being able to respond to mm. each other and have that sense of being seen, even if it was like 90% seeing yeah. as opposed to 100% dead on. So if we're going to be working in groups then that's mm. a really good way to start to help to build that sense of group cohesion that usually happens over yeah. the coffee before the group yes. even starts. Because that's the thing that people yes. are missing most, I think, is that sense of the combined sense of unity that happens in the breaks between the actual yes. work. And we we don't have that, but that would be a way to recreate that. And it was so it was so potent because the whole week was so I felt so connected to everyone, like as if they were there with me. And by the end of the week, we all were like, "Oh, I'm so sorry that we're not going to get to continue tomorrow." (laughs) Like at the end of our five days (laughs) together, it was it was actually kind of sad, you know, that we were having to you know say goodbye. And I a a colleague of mine sat in on some of the calls, uh, and she shared with me a message later, and she said, "You know, I was in another webinar recently." Um, with another trainer and the time was not taken to do that Mm. and it felt much more disconnected much more surface much less powerful Um, and what you did was a relational process um, that really allowed the material to land differently because we felt a sense of community in spite of again being separated by time and distance and even eye gaze being slightly off we still managed to have that connection yeah and there's something about acknowledging the the difficulties and then i'm i'm picturing that smile across continents between you and and the other person mm. it's something about a, a social agreement that we make yeah that has that those moments of private connection that need to be allowed to happen that certainly for me would help me to feel safe in a group that sense of it being okay to be seen and it being okay to see and that this isn't the kind of thing that happens when you're 
in telling your story in a circle or whatever it is that people do mm. in the circles. So that's because I'm thinking we don't know where this is going. I was having a a mm. conversation with a financial person recently earlier mm. today, and he said the only thing we know about next year is it's going to be called 2021. After that, <laughs> the rest is guesswork. Um, I, and they're right. And mm. so if it is the case that we just don't fly anymore, which from you know a carbon and climate point of view would be a really good idea yeah we sure. have to become skilled yeah at what it is that creates this sense of community and cohesion so that after five days yeah I was exhausted after two days of teaching at Schumacher I want your secret of how you managed five days without falling off your chair <laughs> and I'm guessing this is presumably it is that yeah. you were able to to build because what I really missed when I was doing teaching at Schumacher mm. online instead of being there was the energy in the room because mm -hmm. you can surf on that energy teaching yes. and it feels effortless. Yes. And then we did it by Zoom and I get, got to the end of the first day and I, I basically had to go straight to bed yes. because I was shattered yes. and I, I couldn't have done five days like that. Yeah. So you presumably found energy in the connectedness. Yeah. Yes, and and let me speak to that. Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I remember reading an article recently about that was talking about screen fatigue, mm. and also officially known as Zoom fatigue, specifically for those who are using Zoom. Um, but I'm calling it screen fatigue. And I think just from a biomechanical perspective, sitting in the same position for hours, mm. that's tiring. You know, we're not able to adjust as easily. Um, we were fatigued at the end of that week. Don't get me wrong. You know, I did sleep a lot every night. Um, but what I thought was interesting. And I think part of that is also because we, um, I, I mean, I've had glasses my whole life uh, and I have special eyes and glasses to help address, you know, screen staring and blue light and all that kind of stuff. Um, but my optometrist has told me many, many a time um, of the importance of breaking away from the screen every certain number of minutes. And my physiotherapists have told me this as well, um, because screen staring is extremely fatiguing to the eyes because our eyes are not meant to be in a fixed position for long periods of time at the same focal distance. Right. And so that can start to create fatigue also. And interestingly, the articles I keep reading about screen fatigue don't really talk about that. Mm. And I'm sitting here going, I'm not an optometrist, but my optometrist <laughs> and my physiotherapist have told me plenty of times about screen fatigue and I feel fatigue and eyewear. Right. Um, and so I know that there's that portion as well. Um, but I suspect, I highly suspect that that week would have been much more challenging to get through had we not taken the time to model the co-regulation and the attunement that are missing when we don't take the time to do that, which, you know, I think creates a little bit of a buffer because of that shared energy. And so one of the things we were doing that week also is I was co-teaching with a colleague of mine in France. And so her and I were on separate continents and we were co-teaching this workshop. And what was really interesting is that as part of the modeling, because we were teaching co-facilitation and therapeutic, you know, interaction and working with horses and humans together and all this kind of great stuff. And her and I have been very, very connected. We're, we're good friends. And uh, what we did in the training also is we would take time to share our process individually in our interactions with the group um, of how we came to develop safety with one another. And right. by modeling that by video, basically, because we've been doing this by WhatsApp, I mean, we, we would send 
audio recordings to each other where we share our process in not in real time. Mm. And and so I will share about what's going on for me and say, you know, as I'm talking about this, I'm noticing a pressure in my chest and, you know, and I'm as I'm tracking that pressure, I'm imagining you listening to this recording, you know, when you're going to have a chance to and knowing that you're going to listen, you know, allows something to move through my body differently. Wow. Um, and this kind of virtual connection with other and then we would do it in person during the video where, you know, I would talk about how, you know, her and I got connected and how the, the process of building safety in our relationship as colleagues and now as friends took time. It took taking a risk, sharing a little bit about myself, being vulnerable, and then the feelings of vulnerability. And then her receiving that and saying, you know, as I heard you be vulnerable, I really felt something lift in my body or I felt something open in my chest and something shifted inside me as I heard you take the risk to be vulnerable with me. And, and we did that kind of modeling where in the real time of us discussing our co-facilitation relationship, our friendship, the, the, the group of students, that allowed them to settle because they were seeing how we were establishing safety within our relationship through our social engagement systems. And when our ventral vagus was online, when we were pinging off of each other and our heart rates were slowing and our bodies felt safer, the whole group felt the co-facilitator and I be in sync. And that created a ripple effect. And it was so powerful. And so that energy, I suspect, is perhaps what allowed the group to feel energized in spite of the fact it was a long week. Because it was long. I mean, we did four hours every day. Um, And so, but by the end of the week, everyone was like, wow, you sure we can't continue? Can we do another day tomorrow? (laughs) You know, And, and I think in part, it's because we really made sure that we were cultivating that felt sense of being seen, feeling felt, getting gotten, yeah. as Dr. Dan Siegel likes to say. Can you say that sentence again? That's lovely. Being seen and yeah, getting gotten. Um, being seen, yeah, being seen, feeling felt, and getting gotten. Felt and getting gotten. That's that's going to be the title. Fantastic. Yeah. And I wonder what the mechanism, because I'm... Because the idea of mirror neurons is, is leaping around in my head, but it feels to me that this is... Mm. There's something else going on that's more energetic, that mirror neurons are just too hardcore neurophysiology, that there must be something else happening. Have you any idea of of what is going on? Yeah, and I think there's a number of things. I think on one level, there's the, if we want to, and again, I'm going to kind of disclaimer this, um, polyvagal theory is a theory. <laughs> it is not the only explanation for what's going on in mammals, <laughs> you know, and and it's rather reductionistic, like any particular model or theory can be. Um, there's more going on than just the vagus. So I just wanted to say that um, because some people, um, because I tend to talk about polyvagal theory a lot mm. because I like it. It's a really lovely map and I really like it. It's easy to understand when you get your head wrapped around it. Um, And I really like it. It's elegant. But again, it's not the full picture. There's more going on than just this one nerve. So I I do want to preface what I'm about to say by saying that. Um, But at the same time, when Porges talks about the face-heart connection, um, there there is something about vocal tone and prosody. Uh, And and Steve Porges likes to say that our our nervous systems, we're all just looking for Johnny Mathis. (laughs) 
Oh, really? You're going to have to unpick that because I don't actually know who Johnny Mathis is. I Johnny think. Mathis is a singer from the, oh, okay. oh gosh, a number of years ago. And and I think he's from the U.S. Uh, and he was kind of like a crooner. And his music was the kind of music that, you know, teenagers would go and park and make out to. And it was very romantic. <laughs> and, you know, okay. and, and he said, we're all just looking. I think our nervous systems are all just looking for Johnny Mathis. And, and, I, I, and that's speaking to the prosody of the voice. Right, that that a particular tone in our voice right. conveys something to the nervous system. It conveys something to to us that allows us to feel soothed. And and when we have that connection with the other, where we can hear the vocal tone and we can hear the prosody, something changes inside ourselves where right. we slow down and we start to we start to feel a sense of safety that's that face heart connection that the social engagement system is the larynx the pharynx mm. it's the it's it's the sound it's what i hear through my middle ear and all that information comes in and it's soothing to the nervous system and that slows my heart down and i feel safe yes and we do this with little babies right it's why it's why lullabies are so potent and i remember reading an article Recently, I forget who wrote it, if it was from a newspaper or a magazine, but it was talking about how millennials don't sing lullabies to their children. Oh, really? It's they, becoming a lost oh. art. And That's what, what is that doing? Are for. It's what, yeah. Well, when the grandmothers all die, then yeah, what happens, then, right? Yeah, like we're losing, yeah. we're losing social engagement because of screens. Right. And so while we're living in a world where screens, oddly enough, are the necessary evil to allow us to experience some sort of social connection in the midst of this pandemic, mm. how can we do it in such a way that restores connection and co-regulation as opposed to the screen connection where we're disconnected through the screen? Yes, and and that is our inquiry for today, for sure. A- apart from telling all of the listeners, go out, learn a lullaby, find a child, sing to it <laughs> in a way that does not get you arrested. Um, <laughs> it's really important. <laughs> um, so, but because I'm thinking, one of the things that I keep thinking is, mm. I I'm always looking for whether there is intelligent design. I don't believe in intelligent design in the way that it yeah. is often framed, and yet, yeah. it is yeah. my observation that if this virus had hit even five years ago, certainly 10 yeah. years ago, yeah. in the pre-Zoom, pre-Facebook, we would have been communicating one by one on the phone. Yes. And the prosody could have been beautiful, melted chocolate voices, but yes. it isn't the same if you can't see the face to go with it. It's not enough, right. is it? It's There's something about that ability, however much it is a necessary evil, Yeah. we are able to make connection because we have visual and auditory. We're obviously missing olfactory and tactile and the other things that connect us, but those two, sight and sound together, give us that sense of congruence. Because I don't know about you, but I've had phone calls where I can sound really cool on the phone and I'm busy making, what the fuck are you doing? Signals (laughs) to my partner with my face that are entirely incongruent from where my voice is going or or the other way around. Um, And so there's that ability to know that there's authenticity and safety. I think a lot of what Uh, you were saying was that sense of somebody is vulnerable, uh you feel it, and we all settle in a way that goes, if that person is being vulnerable, then it's okay for me to be vulnerable. Therefore, this space is safe. Yeah. Yes. And and so our inquiry for today is how can we help people listening to find that safety? And, and you're modeling it as we speak, I think. Yeah. People can't see yeah. your face, but 
we can hear the authenticity of what you're saying. So we need the congruence. We need the courage to be vulnerable with each other yeah. when it is appropriate, which you know, yeah. there's going to be different kinds of meetings. What yeah. else can we offer people as signposts for safety, do you think? So one of them is going to be recognizing that not everyone finds attunement to be safe. Hmm. So if you're one of the people who are listening right now who feel a little bit put out because we're talking all about the beauty of this co-regulation through right. face-heart connection, right. and you're going, that's not true for me. Right. I have autism. I have sensory processing issues. I have trauma. Um, I have um, social anxiety. You know, there, there's going to be a, a particular population for whom this whole piece is very challenged and for whom making eye contact is, is difficult. Right. And, and where there has been um, a forcing of social engagement on individuals who cannot do it easily or for whom social engagement does not feel safe um, for many reasons, where the forced facial connection um, actually feels more unsafe. And what's more safe is, you know, can we sit side by side, not look at each other, look forward in the same direction and, and hear each other's voice? I mean, sometimes that's what's safer. It isn't the eye contact for some individuals. It is, it's, it's like there are some people for whom they can't do eye contact, but they are great at having conversations, sitting side by side in a car right. going for a drive. Okay, so for those people, the, the Zoom facility to just not have audio and just put up a picture of a flower right. for yourself. Yes then then gives you that safety because then you can just cut back to audio. But, but if you are with someone who's comfortable with audio, you can watch their face if you want to. You're right. You or you to. can also play with this as well. Like one of the things we do in somatic experiencing is, and I like to do in somatic experiencing, is um, working with titrating access to the face. Like how far away does your gaze need to be from my gaze before mm. you start to feel settled and comfortable? Right. Is it two inches? Like how far from your eyes, uh, for how far from my eyes do your eyes need to be where you feel a sense of settling? So is right. it like dead on, dead on? Or is it just a couple of inches off to the side, to the left, right, up, down? Like, and then finding that sweet spot where as you bring your gaze in or your gaze away, where you, you kind of settle. And then finding that sweet spot, and that's where that's as close as you can get, okay. and that's where we start. Right, is like okay, so maybe we can't do eye to eye, but maybe I can have, you know. And for some people, also there's people who have body dysmorphia, for instance, who believe that they are hideous or too large or too small or or whatever, and who whose perception of their bodies does not match reality, so to speak. Right, right. their sense of themselves sure. does not. So quite they match don't want to be looked at. They don't want to be looked at, but it's like, okay, but maybe they can tolerate having the video camera on their hand. Okay. Yeah. And just their hand is in view. And what's right. that like knowing that I see your hand? And then can we just be with that? Okay. You know, and then what happens on the inside? It's not just the tone of voice, but it's the so as as you know, as my hand is or as your hand is in view, and as you know that I can see your hand through my peripheral vision, what happens inside? What's that like for you? You know, what sensations are there? And then let's track through what we, what Peter Levine calls the, the pendulation. There's an activation and there's a deactivation. Can we mm -hmm. just track the rise and the fall of the activation around just having maybe my pinky being seen? Right. 
And then we just pause there. Okay. And then what's that like? You know, and you can play with that. It can be eye gaze. It can be either person playing with what the distance is like. You can play with, like you were saying earlier, the angle. Mm. How far are you from the screen? Yeah. What's this angle like? Do you, what's the setting like behind me? What's different if I change settings? Right. Right. How can we support more comfort, whether that's with more attunement or attunement to recognizing we need less attunement because the attunement is where the scariness is. Hmm. And this is in a a one-to-one and I'm wondering, first of all, I'm feeling extremely guilty about some of the webinars and Zoom calls that I've held where I've put people into breakout rooms and gone, okay, go and chat together and wondering that that would have been better if I'd said, and if you want to switch your video off, that's completely fine. Or if you want to angle your computer away so that you know we're yeah. seeing your chin that's fine yes. and then presumably right. it you know, this must like everything else it well you said it pendulates that yeah just because yesterday it was okay to make some eye contact doesn't mean that today or tomorrow will be the same correct so correct. i have to it involves people being very aware and able to assess and express where they are and i know that in my past it could take me several hours to work out where I was. Yeah. That my capacity for kind of self-awareness was so frozen that yes. I would tell myself stories of, of yes, this is fine. Or, or yes. no, this isn't fine. And yes. it could take a long time to work out that that wasn't necessarily true. So if we have people who are at the beginning of this exploration, mm. are there steps in that are, that, that help us to become more aware of where we're actually at? Yeah, yeah. Because um, even just noticing with curiosity, I remember in the notes you sent me prior to our call today, Amanda, you, you talked about this idea of curiosity. Mm, it's and coming up a lot. curiosity, yeah, it is. And what's so interesting is curiosity is usually a sign that there's some social engagement on board. If I can be curious right? It means I am in what we call in somatic experiencing, exploratory orienting. I am in seeking, but it's not seeking because I feel in danger. It's seeking out of curiosity. Right. And that's Yak uh, Pogsep's work, right? So the idea of I'm in the seeking response. So we seek when we feel safe, and that seeking when we feel safe is very different from the seeking when we feel in danger. And, and it requires that we feel safe. So we're in a kind of a, a yeah. circle of, I wish to feel safe. Therefore, I'm going to be curious about what's happening in my my yeah. sense of unsafety but i need a i need a foothold on safety in order for my curiosity to be joyful curiosity rather than i need to find somewhere to hide curiosity and that would be defensive orienting yeah right so we have so to me defensive orienting is incompatible with curiosity okay it's a different thing they're, yes. they're separate yes. right okay. yeah. to me curiosity is exploratory orienting it's like oh that's so interesting there's a bug i'm going to go look at that bug you know right. um versus oh my god there's a bug holy crap you know like i got, like yeah. you're not looking to be curious about the thing you're looking to get the heck away know. from the thing right, right? so yeah. for me defensive orienting is the is the i need to get away and not be curious response right curiosity is the safety and so if if for some people, this exploration around how do I feel in connection um, is going to feel really vulnerable. To be able to say, can you turn your camera a little bit away might be really scary because for some people that's voicing a need and voicing a need hasn't felt safe mm. in relationship. And so what's really interesting is that the, the very fact of the pandemic being the way it is, 
um, makes some people for whom connection is scary um, feel more safe because they're more isolated and isolation for some people is what feels safer. Mm. Um, for other people, isolation is the trauma because of neglect or abuse. And so for those people, the isolation is bringing up all their needs. Um, and then ironically, because the only way we have to connect is through these, these ways, the social media, these videos, um, then we're having to do, if we're going to actually be in connection, we're having to do that work of, okay, well, how is the camera angle? How close do you need to be? How far do you need to be? What does all that look like? And, uh, and then that brings up our stuff also because around being seen. And so it's almost like there, there's all these little landmines, you know, yeah. that we're having to navigate. And so hence why it's so important to really slow this right down. Okay. And slow this right down and go, okay. Um, and for some people, and here's the thing too, some people, the slowing down is what's hard because I'm more in connection with the, all these pieces. And for some people, it is easier to just simply be disconnected during a video call. And if that's true for you, that's okay. But then notice that and be curious about that. Right. And go, that's so interesting. For me, it's safer or it feels easier, or more comfortable or more familiar mm. for me to not be paying attention to these things. And then that's what you get to be curious about. Okay. So if somebody is in the defensive orienting side, so whatever it is that has triggered the, oh my God, I'm frozen now. Let's assume that that happens in a video call. We don't know what the trigger is. We could go into potential triggers. How yeah. does somebody in the moment help themselves to shift from defensive orienting to exploratory orienting, from, yeah. from fear to curiosity? Because my understanding, or certainly what's been coming up in everywhere I look now, I'm the, the ways up through of the places I want to go are curiosity. Find yeah. that sense of ability to go oh, my goodness my breathing just locked that's yeah, really interesting that's right. what does it feel like why you know my yeah. my whole diaphragm feels like it's full of needles that's really interesting that's, yeah. Um, yeah that's right but you have to be on a how do we get people to that how do we give them the tools other than knowing that that's a possibility to step from yeah. one to the other so so some people will find this easier than others um and for some people we need to back way the heck off and help them learn to recognize that they are uncomfortable with something okay. and start there, right? Because this kind of practice, I mean, one thing I might recommend is for people to look into finding someone who's trained in somatic experiencing mm -hmm. to do some video sessions uh, and to work on some of these pieces. I mean, there are practitioners all around the world. Most of us are doing yeah. remote work right now. And, and that's the thing. Um, we can do it across continents yeah. now. It's, totally. Because there's beautiful. not that many somatic experiencing people in the UK yet, but... Yeah. There's there some, some. There yeah, some. it's coming. Yeah, yeah, it's coming. And they do, I think they do SE trainings. In they the do. My, yeah. I, my therapist yeah. was an SE therapist, amazingly enough. So uh, yeah, Lovely. there are some. Yeah, yeah. So it is out there, but you can work with anyone regardless. I mean, people are working with people around the world. So, you know, you can look into, not every practitioner does, but many do. Um, and so one thing I would suggest is if that is of interest to you, certainly um, look into that because it'll be more, it'll be easier to do it with another nervous system mm. who can help titrate it and do it with you. Peter Levine often says, you know, no one can do this for us, but we can't do it alone. Right. 
Right. And so having another nervous system there as a guide to help us go in and out of what's scary can show us that we can go in and out of what's scary and be okay and get through it and not override, right. but actually be with some of those pendulations of activation and deactivation. And so, so that's one thing I usually suggest is, hey, look into that. Um, another thing will be if you notice yourself in defensive orienting, which is sometimes hard to notice because we, we get caught, so caught up in it that we don't even know that we're in it. Hmm. You know, because we're so used to that right. urgency, that survival drive. So it feels um, like a default it, and normal, and therefore we think yeah. this is the way the world is. That is right. Yeah. And what's interesting is our state determines the story that we have about the world. So if we are in a constantly defensive survival state of a neuroception of danger, my narrative is going to reflect that. Yeah. People are unsafe. The world's on fire. Everything is bad. Yada, yada, yada. I'm not saying that that's not true on some level, but it almost becomes all-encompassing where we don't see the cues of safety. We don't notice the Johnny Mathis voices, right? <laughs> right? We, we don't. We, we lose sight of that. And so if you're finding one of the telltale signs I notice in people who are in defensive orienting is that their eyes are darting everywhere, but they're not really looking. Right. Right. right? They're talking, but they're not really present. They're looking around, but they're not really seeing. Right. They're just in that frantic kind of urgent energy. And if you can step back and go, hey, I notice that you're looking around a lot. I notice that your eyes are all over the place and you can't seem to settle. I wonder what would happen if you were to just simply slow that movement down to like a quarter of the speed hmm. and allow your ears to lead. Like if you were to look in one direction, allow your ear to, to lead and your eyes were to follow your ear. Right. And you were to just look a little bit more slowly. And, and, and notice what you notice. They're still in your head. I'm just trying it as you're speaking. As I, if yeah. I move my ear, then my eyes go in a they smooth follow. arc round. Right. That's right. Yeah. And you follow. You let your eyes follow your ears, and as you do that, exhale. Do a long, slow exhale as you're doing that, and then do the other direction. And you can look in different angles, up and down. But notice what's different when you slow down the looking. Right. What's different in what you see, in the story you're experiencing inside? Like what starts to shift when you slow down the defensive orienting, even to half the speed that you're used to? Right. Mm -hmm. And that movement then becomes very like Castaneda's, gosh, the word's gone, deconstruction movement. No, it'll come back to me. There was a, mm -hmm. years back from Carlos Castaneda, there was a, mm -hmm. a whole system which, just basically involved turning your head very slowly while exhaling from side to side and back again. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So. Yeah. so that's one piece. That's one piece. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking through my notes, which are, so one of the things we wanted to talk about was, and we've begun to touch on it, that for some people being still, the idea of lying down to meditate or lying down in Shavasana pose for yoga or even sitting still to be part of a group, the very stillness yes. itself is threatening. Yes. yes. So if that's the case, I mean, obviously we move, but how do people, if we want to do contemplative practice, yes. which generally speaking involves some stillness at some point, mm -hmm. how do we walk people into that so that we're not triggering First of all, can we yeah. look at why stillness can often be unsafe or can sometimes yes. be unsafe and then how to make it safe? 
Absolutely. In somatic experiencing, we talk about coupling dynamics. So I'll try to do that justice in the like 10, 15 yeah, yeah, minutes yeah. that we have left. Yeah. So we talk about coupling dynamics and, and um, what that essentially means is something becomes overly associated with something else or something becomes unassociated with something else where it, when they actually should be in connection. So I, an example would be whenever I go to lie down, I start to feel terror. Right. Normally, when I go to lie down, I shouldn't feel terror. <laughs> you know, I should be able to lie down. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yes. Right. So that would be overcoupling. Yeah. Right. And usually, when there's overcoupling, there's also something that's undercoupled, as in something that should be present that's missing from that equation. Right. And so, and what can be present or absent, um, Peter Levine likes to call SIBAM. So, SIBAM is an acronym that stands for sensations, images, behaviors, affect, in other words, emotion and meaning, which is thoughts, beliefs, etc. And, and these things can either be present or not present. And so um, we talked about blended states, I think last time, Poor just talks Mm. about blended states, and he talks about immobility without fear, which is, we get the experience, our first experiences of immobility without fear are when we are feeling felt and getting gotten and being held in a safe relationship where there's attunement and co-regulation and the caregiver is reliable enough, not perfect, but reliable enough that there's repair when there's a mistake in attunement, you know, that we do all these things. um, And we are able to settle in the, the presence of another. And then that allows me to settle and feel safe. And then we have immobility without fear where I can rest, I can nurse, I can, I can relax, I can sleep in the presence of another and it feels okay because I learned that the presence of another is okay and that my needs will be met. Okay. And so I can slow down enough and feel safe in the slowing down. But of course, there's also immobility with fear which is what you're speaking about. Yeah. And and both Peter Levine and Steve Porges both talk about this idea of immobility with fear, which is when I start to slow down, I start to notice terror. Right. I'm, I feel dread, something bad's going to happen. And often that links back to earlier times where it wasn't safe. Some When I felt unsafe no one came and the only option i had was to be to go into shutdown Hmm. and to be alone and that was terrifying that's really scary for a little nervous system to not have your needs met to not have someone come when you cry to to be left alone in the midst of something overwhelming when your nervous system is that premature or immature you know that that we need that co-regulation we need that presence of a reliable other we need that ventral vagal system from another individual to help us develop ours and when that isn't possible the only options we have are to get activated or to shut down and so the shutting down can for some people be overcoupled with fear and terror right and so we are what's undercoupled is safety and connection because all we have is the terror. And so what you have is people who go into contemplative practice, who learn to meditate, and you're going to have some meditators who turn to meditation or yoga or what have you, who are excellent, excellent at splitting off and dissociating. Um, And and they go to meditation or contemplative practices of various kinds, um, because it supports them to be more disconnected. Oh, my goodness. And And then we call that spiritual bypassing. Okay. 
right? Yeah. Robert Augustus Masters wrote a book a number of years ago called Spiritual Bypassing, which is a really great read. And so I really encourage people to take a look at that. Um, and, um, and then of course there's other people for whom going to yoga or meditation is absolutely the opposite experience. It's absolutely terrifying. It isn't the bliss of disconnection where I'm no longer present to my experience. It is the terror of being alone. Right. And then you're going to have people who quit yoga just before you get to Shavasana and they're like, okay, I got to go to work. And, and the story, the story, right? The story, the narrative is I have to get to work. Mm. But if you look at the state that precedes the story, it might be that they're starting to anticipate anxiety. They're starting to anticipate something. And that anticipation is the story being told is I have to get to work. I'm going to be late. Right. But in reality, there actually can be another explanation for that story. And is it actually that you're worried about being late? Because that could be true. Yeah. Or it could be that the stillness is terrifying and the story you're telling yourself is that you're going to be late. Yeah. Right? And the urgency is, I need to leave. And that yeah. urgency is actually very early developmental urgency around, so, I've got to move because something yeah. bad's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, because I, yes. So for those of us who teach contemplative practice, how, if I have somebody, I, I can't know, particularly now when we're teaching at a distance, yes. what can I offer people for whom this may be an option? Because yeah. it's, there are walking meditations, yeah. but they're more of an advanced skill. It is much easier to watch your breath with some kind of joyful curiosity if you're not having to think about not tripping over stuff. At the same time. Depends it's on the just person. Easier. Depends on the person. Okay. Depends on the person. Okay. Some people feel more present when they're outdoors in nature walking. That is when they feel the most grounded. Yeah. And that is what allows them to be more connected to themselves because they feel held. There's sensory input. They, they have a sense of there's something on the outside. I, I'll, I will never forget this. I have had a number of clients who have gone to um, various types of contemplative practice, silent retreats, that kind of thing. Um, where they're told that they're not allowed to look around. Hmm. They're told they have to keep their eyes closed or hmm. keep their eyes down. Okay. And these are clients of mine for whom eyes closed or eyes down contributes to a sense of feeling trapped. Right. Contents- contributes to a sense of I can't move, right. which was really terrifying. And to be fully in the body and looking down and looking in can become very overwhelming for individuals who have that kind of early history. And so I'll I'll never forget this. I had one person was preparing to go to a retreat. And this person, we had done a lot of work around sensory orienting and present time orientation by doing that slow ear, you know, Mm. looking with the ear, you know, and, and taking in the surroundings. And then that allows the person to settle and feel more in their body and feel more in present. Um, and that person did really well with that kind of practice. And that's what allowed them to cue in and went to this silent retreat and was told not to do that, that that was distraction. And they were forced to, you know, be in a little isolation chamber and not look at each other. And there wasn't that sense of co-regulation. I mean, when you go to these group classes, you're supposed to all look ahead and no one's supposed to look at each other. And so that beautiful practice I talked about earlier today, where on the video call, we all took time Hmm. to orient to each other's faces for those for whom it felt comfortable, right? And we oriented to the sense of the connection in the space. Everyone settled. Right. And, And there was a sense of, and even for those who couldn't look directly head on, to whatever degree they were able to tap into the sense that we were all there together, 
there was something about that that was okay-ish. Okay. And something shifted. And I think to myself, okay, if we're going to be teaching contemplative practice, and that's what we're returning to in the midst of this pandemic for resourcing, for grounding, and so on, can, can we also allow space for whatever is needed to be done to help resource ourselves in the midst of that. Because for some people, the stillness is the center of what Peter Levine calls the trauma vortex. And what we know from somatic experiencing is we need to titrate into that to build the window of tolerance for it. So what resources are available to allow me to dip into that trauma vortex without losing myself? And if that resource is, I'm going to allow my eyes to be open and look around. Yep. While everyone else is in Shavasana, I'm going to allow myself to sit up and put a blanket around my back, and I'm going to allow myself to look around the room hmm. and lead with my ears okay. and listen to the music. Yeah. And if sitting and having the bolster against my chest gives me a felt sense of pressure, which is proprioception, which allows me to feel a sense of containment, and that allows me to find stillness and safety in stillness, then by all means, do it. Yeah. Because that's what's going to allow you to have that moment. And that's your first step into titrating into stillness not being unsafe, perhaps. Right. right. What resources are needed to allow you to let go? We only let go when we feel held. Okay. Yep. And then if people want to, if people find it easier in their own practice to yeah. be out in the world, which a lot of us do, and yeah. and if you have an out in the world you can get to safely, yeah. That isn't, you know, likely to be queued up with muggers, but is a place where you can be safe. Yeah. Then that can titrate in also. Yeah. Can what's yeah. it like to be present to what's around? Yeah. And this is a really lovely practice to begin to notice: is can you allow your senses to orient to what attracts you? Yeah. What, what is pleasurable and can you orient to that? Now that's going to bring up some stuff for some people because they weren't allowed to experience pleasure or good things never lasted. And so the mm -hmm. thought of connecting to something good brings up, you know, stuff again. This is where <laughs> titrated small little bits, right? Yeah. Takes time, right? Yeah. Every nervous system is different. For all your listeners, you're going to have, you know, 80,000 people who are going to have 80,000 different responses to what I'm saying, yeah. you know? And so it's so important to have a guide to help you with this. You know, if you're finding this difficult to do by yourself, you do not have to do this alone, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and if, if it's safer to try it alone for now, then absolutely. Like, notice what you're drawn to when you go for a walk. What allows you to feel in connection? Are you walking disconnectedly? Are you in, are you in defensive orienting as you're walking? Are you completely not oriented at all? Or are you waking up your ventral vagus by allowing yourself to take in what you find pleasurable? What colors do your eyes like? What sounds do your ears like? What happens if you walk towards the flower on the side of the road? What happens if you then, when you notice the flower, you feel the sunlight on, the, on your right cheek and you walk in the direction of the sunlight, and then what happens? Mm. We're, we're using our exploratory orienting to wake up the ventral vagus, which wakes up the social engagement system, which is kind of like self-regulation. Right. It slows the heart down. Yes. If being with people is too much, can you do it by being in connection with nature and really attuning through curiosity? Because yeah. that's utilizing the same parts of the social engagement system as social connection. Oh, we could be just about to open up a whole new hour. We can't <laughs> because there isn't time, but 
That one day we're going to go back to that phrase of opening up the social engagement system. Yeah. Yeah, that's. But we, but for here, for now, because I am very aware of the time, I think that's such such a good place to stop. And I, cool. I'm going back to your notes on Guelph, and right at the bottom, the, the Guelph presentation, you wrote the feeling of safety is the treatment. And I think that's that's, Steve that's from Steve Forges, yeah. which is just yeah. for me was one of those beautiful light bulb moments of that's that's a doorway that can open and that maybe a different doorway every time yeah but it is possible to open it and we yeah. can find ways in this pandemic when last time you said something beautiful about there may not be a tiger in the bushes but there's a coronavirus that's like glitter and it's just everywhere but we can't see it so we yeah. have a danger that we can't see yeah. and yet there are ways that we can help ourselves to feel safe and this feeling of safety is the treatment. So or safe enough. Yeah, safe, safe enough. enough. Yes. I, I'll say safer with an R in brackets, you know, okay. like it's this it's relative safety. Yeah. You know, in this moment right now. Yeah. What attracts me? What is safer in this moment yeah. right now? So that I can feel safe enough. Yeah, to do safe the work enough. That I and want when to do. that's it. And when you orient to that, what's different inside? What changes? You're a wonder. I think we need to be done because time. Thank you yeah. so much for this, Sarah. I am You're so, welcome. so grateful. And when you do one of these five-day courses, I'm going to find a way to come on it <laughs> sneakily, however sneakily, because it sounds really exciting and inspiring. We're running them again. We're running them again. Okay. Yeah, we've got new sets it. of dates for um, for July, August, and October. So. Okay. And do you want to yeah. tell everybody where to, to look for those? That's on your website? Yeah. So the focus specifically is on the horse-human relationship, but even if you're not in that world, you may find it interesting mm. to kind of sign up, and you might get a lot out of it just the same because the the material applies to other animals as well. So if you have dogs and yeah. and cats and other farm animals, for instance, you I'm may there. really really appreciate it. So, so we would find this on the Equisoma website. Equisoma website, yeah, not my Sarashlota website. Yeah. yeah, well, although the events are listed on the Sarashlota website as well, which is my sort of non-horse website, it's my okay. more regular private practice site. Okay. Um, so we're, either way, you'll find it, but equisoma.com is the one where you'll find more specific details about the program. Yay. I am heading there now. Fantastic. And I will put both of those in the show notes. So Sarah, thank you again so much for the generosity of your time. I am beyond grateful. You're welcome. Thank you so much again for the opportunity. Always a pleasure. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Sarah for her wisdom and integrity and the depth of her humanity. I think, I hope, this is the end of series two, where we look into the ways that we can use the foundational work we laid out in series one. If all goes according to plan, you never know, then series three will begin next week. And that'll be where we start to build a vision for a future that can be different, where we can predicate the entire structure of our culture on foundations of humanity and the planet flourishing. This feels really important. We can't go somewhere if we have no idea of where it leads. So I want to start building visions of different ways, hopefully integrated different ways, that we can build our way to a different future. So wait for next week. Series three will kick off if I can get the right people herded into the right cats at the right time. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Caro C for the music 
at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for designing the website and for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods. And thanks, as ever, to you for listening. We would not be here without you. If you want to visit the website that Faith so lovingly designs, we're at accidentalgods.life on the web. That's where you find the show notes to this and the other podcasts, the blog, the transcripts, and the Accidental Gods membership program with a structured training designed to bring us all to the point where we can take our place in the web of life with integrity, authenticity and grounding and that way head towards conscious evolution. We have some online courses that will be happening sometime in July, so there are details of those on the website too. So if you know of anybody else who would like to be active in bringing about the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, do send them the link to the website or to this podcast. That's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.